The Lord be with you. Uh, I want to begin by proclaiming God's goodness. Um, to uh, to be here, and all that has transpired for me to be here. Uh, God's goodness. God's goodness. When I was first thinking about <laughs> thinking very hard about what I should say to such a group as you, because you you do inspire a measure of fear, you know. Uh, I looked for some perspective from the Christian calendar and the Revised Common Lectionary. And as I was spending time there, I, I was led to consider speaking to you on the transfiguration of Christ. And I thought a little bit more about it. And then I thought of how February is a, a month when we ourselves uh, are transfigured. Our form is changed because our, our shoulders stoop and uh, our head hangs lower. Our eyes are glassier. Our speech is more lethargic. That we ourselves are transfigured in February. And so I thought, yes, the transfiguration of Jesus. That's, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, there are a lot of scholarly opinions about the significance of the transfiguration within the larger biblical story and uh, how it reflects other events and echoes other themes and motifs in the, in the scripture. But we're going to try to approach it today as people who want to know, who need to know, who must know the glories of the Lord's Christ in our own life. The Lord's glorious Jesus uh, within. And uh, all three synoptic Gospels uh, record the transfiguration. And as for John, rogue theologian, <laughs> sort of always wanting to, to come at it from a different angle. Uh, it was probably not far from his mind when he wrote in that first chapter, And we beheld his glory. Uh, I suspect that. But we're going to be sticking very close to Mark so that we hear his, may I say it, ungarbled voice as the others weigh in. We'll try to keep them at bay so that we just hear Mark's voice. The day began innocently enough, I suppose. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John on a, a little stroll. Okay, a mountain trek. Apparently you had to be in good shape to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, up and up. And up, Jesus led them past the inhabited areas, uh, past the places where someone might happen upon them, uh, to a place that was secluded. Peter, James, John, Jesus. And then, really somehow, Jesus began to change. To shimmer, to gleam, that transfigured is the word that comes down to us, or transformed, as we heard. Uh, Jesus' body began to glow with glory, and even his clothes were drawn into the, the transformation. And, and Mark says that there's no category that he was aware of for the whiteness of the clothes of Jesus. 
you couldn't go to the paint counter in, in Home Depot and ask for them to mix you up a batch of Transfiguration white because there is no white like that. It's the color of pure Shekinah. It's transcendence. And as I was thinking about this, I'm going, this reads like the book of the Revelation as it describes Christ. You might be familiar with some of the familiar paintings. I just, you could say that again. You might be familiar with some of the paintings of Christ knocking on the door. There are a few around. Some are quite well known. And um, in the paintings, he seems friendly enough. Uh, his face is kind. His demeanor is calm. He's gently tapping at the door. That's in Revelation 3. He got that from, uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If, if you read in Revelation 1, how Jesus appears to John in his heavenly vision, His hair is as white as snow, eyes like blazing fire, feet glowing like molten bronze, voice like a roaring waterfall, a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his face is like the blinding sun. John tells us that this is the one calling out to the church and knocking to be let in. We might want to think twice before opening the door. We just might want to think twice. Back to the mountain. As the disciples are struggling to take it all in, they're even more stunned if that were possible when those two ancient spiritual heavyweights show up. Elijah and Moses. They appear with Jesus. We don't know how they were recognized by the disciples. Not told us. And then, as if they were longtime friends reunited after many years, we have the iridescent Messiah, the storied lawgiver and the prophet extraordinaire, somehow settling into deep conversation. Oh, to be a fly on the proverbial wall. What was that conversation? Mark is silent. He, I guess, leaves it to our holy imaginations. And then, sort of on the edges of the conversation, another voice chimes in, a little tinny, because it's a voice of fear. Fear. (laughs) Rabbi, it's so good for us to be here. Let's build three lean-tos, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Now, we might want to explain what Peter's trying to get at. Many people do. It's understandable. But Mark's quite dismissive of it. Peter was so rattled by the whole spectacle, Mark says, he didn't know what he was saying. So don't waste a lot of time trying to exegete this Mark seems to whisper. (laughs) Don't go to a lot of pains. Don't make this the focus of your message. He was out. (laughs) And then the next wave of glory comes and overwhelms the disciple. A cloud descends and swallows them whole. And a voice comes out of the cloud. 
I love my son. Listen to him. I love my son. Listen to him. Not look at him. Not look at him all shining and glorious, which may be our sort of instinctive response. Listen to him. Listen to him. That calls on another part of who we are. Somewhere deeper. Um, We might actually find ourselves maybe more captivated by Jesus' changing appearance. Maybe the science behind it. What's happening in his cells. Or maybe we're just caught up by the emotional impact of it. But it seems really that the voice is the centerpiece of the story. It was the voice that was imprinted in Peter's consciousness. As he's reflecting on this whole event uh, some decades later, the organ of memory that he uses is not his eyes. I remember what it looked like. No, he says, the organ of memory is his ears. He says, I remember the voice. I remember the voice. Because he recalls in his letter, we were eyewitnesses or earwitnesses of the majesty of Jesus for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory when we were with him on the sacred mountain he received glory and honor when the voice weighed in and what's interesting is after the voice sounded the passage pretty quickly comes to a close and it's sealed by Jesus' instruction to the disciples not to breathe a word of what happened until a scarred and yet even more glorious Christ would be seen. I love my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Of all the commands that God ever placed on us, this ranks right up there with the hardest with the hardest commands. Listen to him. I can still feel my head hanging down in utter defeat. Uh, Outside a classroom door at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto 20 years ago. It was my first course in spiritual formation. It was entitled Foundations of Christian Spirituality. I had high hopes. I was on my way. But there I was out in the hall, a shriveled mass of frustration, fear, sadness, and desperation. What we'd been asked to do in the class was really a small thing. Just ask one of our classmates, and this happened after class, we'd all introduced ourselves to each other, shared a bit about who we were, a bit of our, our experience as a, a follower of Jesus. And we would ask somebody to be a spiritual friend to us throughout the duration of the sem- semester. And that we would meet weekly with them and share about our journey with Jesus. And so, I mean, it, it was a simple thing. And, and yet I was caught uh, in my own fear, in my own insecurity. As I thought back 
of all the people in the class and how they'd introduce themselves. I knew that I didn't want that uptight guy over there sending out bad vibes to me when he was sharing about his life. There was another guy who had sort of relaxed, you know, take me as you find me written all over him. I'm going, oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's the guy, yeah. So after class, Mr. Uptight came to me and I waved him off. I said, oh, I'm waiting for someone else. And he goes, thanks. And it's not that I didn't want this to be a significant friendship. That was my deepest held hope. I really wanted a friend in Jesus. Um, and yet all I could hear were the voices of my own fear and my own biases. And, um, and something inside me broke. And outside that classroom I choked out what has become one of the more important confessions of my life. I don't know how to listen to you. I'm not good at this. Christian, for over three decades at that point, a pastor entrusted with the care of God's people for 15 of those years. But I didn't know how to listen to Jesus. In God's providence, <laughs> I went to find Mr. Uptight. <laughs> and, and so it began. <laughs> and so it began. <laughs> Listen to him. Listen to him. I had been living with the assumption that Jesus was somehow trapped inside the Bible. Uh, his life on earth was his one shot at saying what he wanted to say. And, and now that the words had all been spoken and all been written down, he developed some kind of profound laryngitis. His words to me in scripture were locked in the then and there. They were not meant to woo me into a conversation in the here and now. And that conversation, that confession, pardon me, all thanks to God, uh, the healing began. And it wasn't long afterwards when I was reading the story of Jesus and blind Bartimaeus with as open a heart as I could muster. When suddenly the words of Jesus to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Became Jesus' startling and very pointed question to me. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And for the next few days, I was silent with Jesus. I was half stunned, half delighted that I'd heard from him, but I had no idea how to respond. Nothing had prepared me to hear. Nothing had prepared me to respond. But I don't think it's overreaching to say that I'm here speaking to you today in the chapel of ADC because Jesus very gently drew an answer out from me. A Puritan John Flavel spoke of the distinctive quality of Christ's voice. It is an inward voice. It is an inward voice that penetrates to, to the soul. 
a personal word, distinguishable from all other voices, surprising and unexpected. It is a powerful, convicting, and conclusive word, a word often arising out of Scripture, and the soul is never the same after hearing it. So is there something we can do to help prepare us to listen, to open ourselves to hear? Perhaps prayer? My wife Margie and I were visiting friends in Dartmouth. They originally hailed from Africa, and a close relative of theirs was staying in their home, a woman who had known far more than her fair share of grief in life. And during that evening, and for some reason I can't recall really the circumstances, but she began to sing a prayer, and it was a plea. And she sang it in her native language. And her hands and her bodies entered into the whole intercession, and it was quite wonderful to see. And every movement of her hands sort of reinforced as a harmony what her words were saying. And her, her face was upturned. It was intense. And yet at the same time, it was peaceful and trusting. And as she sang the words, our host translated for us. It was, Lord, speak one word. Just one word, Lord. Just speak one word. In the name of the Christ who speaks.